Thank you for joining us for another lesson from God's Word. The West Huntsville Church of Christ at Providence is located at 1519 Old Monrovia Road, Northwest, Huntsville, Alabama, 35806. Anytime you're in the Huntsville area, we hope you'll stop in and be part of our worship. Sunday morning worship is at 9 o'clock, with Bible class immediately following. Sunday evening worship is at 5. Midweek Bible study is held Wednesdays at 7. If everyone in the um, foyer could come on in and have a seat, we're going to be showing this video tonight. And since it's a, such a low-resolution video, they're going to have to turn the lights pretty dim tonight. And then next week, next week's lesson is going to be a follow-up on what the video covers. Okay, so the show tonight is going to belong to the sound booth. It's a disaster of seismic proportions. A mountain erupts, perhaps wrath from the gods. Ash and debris rain down. Homes are destroyed, lives cut short. The fate of over a thousand is sealed. And their stories lost for more than a thousand years. See the ancient city like never before with scenes from the upcoming motion picture, Pompeii. It was amazing to get such a clear picture of Pompeii in my, in my mind. It was obviously a vibrant, uh, ancient city. This is the story of the people of Pompeii and a city buried alive. Nearly 20,000 people live in the booming town of Pompeii in A.D. 79. 150 miles from Rome. And three miles from a benign little hill called Vesuvius. It sits on the Bay of Naples, both a trade hub and popular vacation spot. The people who live here have no idea that disaster is about to strike. In 48 hours, their town will become both a tomb and a time capsule. For more than 200 years, archaeologists have been digging here. where entire districts of ancient Pompeii are perfectly preserved, frozen at the moment of their destruction. Like no other site, it shows how ancient Romans lived. Works of art often focus on the rich and powerful. Furniture, paintings, even entire buildings offer a glimpse into the lives of Rome's most elite. But now, a research team reveals a different group of Pompeians. Ones often overlooked. Ordinary men and women. The working class. 
we've got a whole suite here of working class properties, houses and shops and workshops and all the bits and pieces that made up a, a working class zone in Pompeii. This has given us a fantastic and unique opportunity to look at the, the lives of the other 98% of the population who've been largely hidden from us for, for, for so long now. Being on the set of the film Pompeii helped actor Kit Harrington visualize the details of the ancient city. We filmed market scenes depicting life on the main streets of the city. The city was filled with thriving businesses, uh, shops and restaurants. In this particular building, we've even discovered one man's name. A single find unlocks his story. It came from this storage niche uh, down in the corner of this room, which would have been next to uh, a bed here. And what was found was a, a small bronze uh, military diploma, which was a, a document given to a person upon retirement from the Roman military service. Now kept under lock and key, the document amounts to a full resume. It's made of bronze rather than paper and survives still legible to this day. It's a really important document because it establishes that the holder is a Roman citizen. His name down here is Marcus, son of Dama, Cyrus Garasinus. Garasinus, that's a really weird Roman name. It doesn't sound like a Roman name. And it's because he's a Syrian, uh, as are all his mates who have signed at the back. Uh, three of them come from Antioch, one of them comes from Caesarea and so on. And this guy has served in the fleet at Mycenaeum, it says. Fantastic. Mycenaeum is just over the water from Pompeii. They're essentially the police force that keeps the Mediterranean free of pirates. So he probably didn't see terribly much action, um, except just being a presence there in the Mediterranean, going out on their ships, visiting various ports, making sure that no one was up to trouble. Garasinus is a veteran of the Marine Force, which is made of non-citizens. Roman citizenship is the reward for 26 years of service. And its proof is this diploma. No wonder he kept it close. This is like your passport. It's the most valuable thing you have. It's, no, it's more than your passport. It's your birth certificate and your passport put together. And he keeps it in the safest place he knows. And so we can be pretty sure that he's the name of the guy who was sleeping in that bed in AD 79. This man is a respected member of the community and has made a new life for himself as a tradesman. The building houses his workshop, and here he produces bronze goods for sale. When the first excavators came here in the 1870s, they found a whole series of, of bronze artifacts that were, that were sold from here. What we've since done is excavated in some of the rooms out the back and some of the rooms out the front and found all the different bronze smithing facilities that helped to do that. On the morning of August 23rd, A.D. 79, Garasinus is in his shop. The ancient world sets its clock by the sun. 
and as daylight appears, work begins. All along the street, other businesses are opening. Well, what you would have seen here in AD 79 is a street front teeming with wide entranceways into shops and workshops. But we've also found a series of stairwells that were up to uh, second floor apartments above. Up there we can imagine hanging balconies that would have reached out over the street as well. During the eruption, many of these upper stories collapse under the weight of the debris. But right now, in the building next door to Garasinus, a family starts their day. Archaeologists have determined that the business is a restaurant. In this threshold here, there's a double door which opened up from the centre here and so the guests could come to the front here and look straight down the centre of the property into a dining room up the far end. So one of the clues that this building was operating as a restaurant in antiquity was found in this room in here. In the corner of this space, we have an oven with a counter in front of it. We also found many coins in this space. Uh, these give us a fantastic indication of just how much money was changing hands in this kitchen. It's a diner, one of many throughout the Roman Empire. It's modest, relying on regular customers, passing trade, and long hours. Within 48 hours, all they own will be gone. But for now, everyone has work to do. And the streets are coming to life. This block is exclusively working class, but the street is a melting pot. Rich, poor, all trades, all races. Within the city walls, it's cramped and crowded, and the lives of Pompeians all interconnect. In fact, the first business of the day brings together people of different status. Our humble restaurant owner leaves his family to their chores and walks a short distance to his neighbor's house. It's only a couple of streets, but it's a world away from his own home. This is one of the most important addresses in the city, and the building's a very public display of wealth power and status. A house like this is built to stun the visitor. First with the view that you get as you come in through the narrow entranceway and it opens out into this great space, the atrium. And you look through the broad tablinum and through to the garden, the peristyle garden there. And it's all using a standard Roman formula. The atrium is built typically with the roof sloping into the centre so that the water comes into a pool where it's connected and goes down to the well. And the light, of course, comes in here. This house takes up nearly as much space as the entire working-class block two streets away. And every morning, outside its door... The ritual is the same. The local men form a line. They're here to formally pay their respects. And here is the tablinum, which is the traditional morning reception room of the house. Here, traditionally, the owner of the house is meant to sit perhaps on a throne 
and you can see what an impressive position it'll be. He's framed in this space, and the, the, the visitor coming in looks through and sees him with a, with a bright light behind him too. A stunning sight. The owner of the house, Popeus, is a patron, a godfather figure to his clients. He protects their interest, gives them advice, even money, in return for their respect and their loyalty. Their daily morning ritual is called the Salutatio. The theory is that after the Salutatio, you set out to the forum, and the crowd that is gathered around you will then accompany you to the forum where, as a magistrate, you will give justice or, or whatever. And it's that retinue following you through the streets that's a sign of your importance. Big people never move alone. They've always got a crowd around them. Life in Pompeii goes on as usual. But as Pompeius and his entourage make their way through the crowd, something unseen is happening. Miles beneath the surface of the earth, a terrible pressure is building. These people will soon learn that nothing is safe, not even the ground under their feet. Today, experts try to predict volcanic eruptions by monitoring emissions. They plot changes in surface temperature and subterranean vibrations. Of course, the Romans of ancient Pompeii are without this science. And few are concerned about the dangers of Vesuvius. Nowadays, if we look to the volcano behind me, we can see a very deep crater. This deep crater tells us of the recent eruption of Vesuvius. When the people of Pompeii would look towards the mountain, they could see a mountain with very large vegetation, full of flowering trees and orchards. That didn't give the impression of being an active volcano. But what the townspeople and the shepherds who graze their flocks on the side of the mountain don't know is that far beneath them, a catastrophic chain of events has begun. If we could see deep under our feet, we could see that under this volcano, at six to nine miles of depth, there is a magma chamber. The magma chamber is a space deep on the ground filled with molten rock at a temperature of around 1800 degrees Fahrenheit. An extra amount of magma entered the magma chamber, in this case, creating a higher pressure that forced a crack in the rocks above. The molten rock is forcing its way out. In fact, its effects are felt years before. The city lives through something which today would be seen as a terrible warning. This is evidence of a major disaster, an earthquake that hit this city in 62 AD, which is 17 years before the final eruption. What we find is that in this wall, for example, where we have the brick in the corner, which surrounds this nice diamond-shaped wall, in fact is broken off at this point and is instead replaced by a much more poorly built wall. And so the walls have been rebuilt with that rubble into this much more basic design.
questo terremoto. Even though the people on Pompeii did not know, it is clear to volcanologists today that this earthquake of 62 BC was a precursor of the eruption. It indicates that the magma is about to reach the surface and the new eruption is about to occur. Pompeians definitely didn't understand the dangerous position they were in. They even built the city on an offshoot of a previous lava flow. So this is how it begins. The 17 years between the earthquake and the final eruption are, on a geological scale, just the blink of an eye. But in the world in which the Romans live, a natural disaster is the action of an angry god. So instead of heeding the warning and abandoning a doomed city, the people of Pompeii do just the opposite. They try to appease their gods, remaking the temples of the Forum bigger and grander than before. Clad in white marble on the eve of the eruption, it appears indestructible. Two thousand years later, and in ruins, the Forum is now the focus of a surprising piece of research. For decades, this building has puzzled archaeologists. It's one of the largest here, but no one has ever determined its purpose. We're standing in some kind of colonnaded porch with a special feature, which is a raised platform, the sort of space which could be used for giving speeches, making public announcements, and almost certainly for auctions. The question is, what was actually auctioned here? Whatever it was, it was clearly something of value. At the entrance, slots in the stones indicate that the doors could be barred. There are also two guardhouses inside. This was one of the most secure buildings in the city. It appears that the merchandise was kept in a long, enclosed corridor, whose only windows opened onto an internal courtyard. Again, the holes in the windowsills show that there were shutters that could bar the space. And over here, there's even a hole in the wall that might suggest a bar. Now, this has led various people to suggest that what was in there was jewelry or something that needed to be guarded. But this is an odd way to look at jewels. This isn't a counter. This is a windowsill. So what I actually think was one of the functions of this corridor was the display of slaves for sale. Perhaps this building reveals a part of the Roman world that's been largely invisible. Slaves are everywhere in ancient Rome. Households, businesses, even government. You here. You, barbarian, here. They make up 30% of Italy's population. 
yet virtually no written accounts of their lives are left behind. They are treated as a commodity rather than people. The story is pieced together from the archaeological evidence and suggests that this building was a marketplace for human livestock. The auction is a defining moment for a slave. It can be the difference between a relatively comfortable existence and a hellish one. But on this day, no one, slave or owner, will be spared from the hell which is about to come. When the mountain erupts, some slaves will die, still chained. This man will be found where he fell, unable to run away. The ash from Mount Vesuvius smothers everything. It captures people fleeing, cowering, dying in the face of an unfolding disaster. As the ash hardens, it solidifies the shape of its victims' bodies long after their flesh is gone. Archaeologists have found cavities that they can fill with plaster to create molds. They're able to see, hundreds of years later, exactly how the dead lay when the volcano struck. They have also found bones. So far, the remains of 1,100 people have been pulled from the ground. But one recent find stands out because of what was discovered next to the body. When we excavated, we found this shackle. There are two of them, so both ankles would have been locked up inside the big iron rings. When we found these two objects, we definitely knew that the first skeleton we found was a slave. Not only were household slaves common, but slaves were also groomed to be gladiators, and they were forced to fight to the death in a huge amphitheater in the city. The slave skeleton shows he's likely one of the lucky ones. Probably well-treated, well-fed, and not forced into hard labor. He may have been a domestic slave. Many Roman families have them. In a wealthy household, they perform all of the menial tasks. In the main part of the house, it's striking how open and visible everything is. If you want to find where the slaves are, where the people who do the real work, you've got to go around the corner to the invisible bits. And no, no eye wants to come into this part of the house. It's a, a strange sort of dog leg. Suddenly we've lost all the beautiful decoration. We're down to, to walls with, if they're plastered, these walls are plastered, it's very, very plain plaster. There's no color on it. And over here, we have a series of rooms that are evidently service rooms. Through there, there's a stable, and they found a cart and various agricultural implements in it. In here are sort of service rooms, um, and it's in these that, that the slaves must live and work. Sometimes a slave can rise to a position of importance in the household. He may even be given his freedom. 
and possibly remain a member of his old master's staff, living out his life as a respected figure. But that doesn't happen for this man. It's likely that he is simply valued as property. We know about him only because of the way he dies. His body is found with another, older man's. And, and what sort of building were they in? Yeah, uh, we found them uh, near a tower, and uh, they were escaping during the eruption. To the trained eye of a forensic anthropologist, the state of the bones, even 2,000 years after death, is very telling. On skeleton number two, um, we have a lot of evidence of um, exposure to some kind of heat. Um, on this vertebra particularly, you can see um, charring on the front. Um, and that happens on, on a number of these vertebrae here. And on the foot bone here, again, you can see charring on the inside of the bone, uh, which indicates the bone fractured as well. It takes tremendous heat to cause damage like this. The black colour indicates that the bones were exposed to a heat of between 3 and 600 degrees Celsius. That's between about 600 and 1100 Fahrenheit. The evidence shows that this heat comes in a sudden, intense blast. Uh, we can see that the bodies were in what's known as a pugilistic pose, which is a boxer's pose. Um, this is caused because uh, the muscles begin to shrink um, when exposed to extreme heat. Now, the muscles that you use to clench everything and tighten everything um, are stronger than the ones that you use to stretch everything out. So as they shrink, those muscles take over and you adopt this stance. That would indicate that the individual died a very short period before being exposed to those temperatures. Because if the individual has gone into what's known as rigor mortis and gone stiff, they won't go into this pugilistic pose. At Pompeii, archaeologists find numerous bodies posed like this. Men and women killed by something they just couldn't outrun. On August 23rd, AD 79, fate is fast approaching. In fact, the end is already underway. On the eve of Pompeii's impending disaster, warning signs start to appear. The citizens have no way of knowing what lies ahead, but the world starts to change before their eyes. The day before the eruption, the magma rises towards the surface. During this process, the magma goes in between cracks in the rocks, and the rise of the magma itself creates a physical mutation of the volcano. The volcano grows in height, and the external slopes start tilting more, and the coastline moves slightly further away. 
All these factors could also be noticed by the people of Pompeii. If people don't notice the altered shape of the mountain or the drop in sea level, they must feel the ground beneath their feet begin to shift. But according to contemporary Roman accounts, Pompeii is used to earth tremors. It's part of everyday life, rather than a cause for alarm. And so, they carry on. The working day, which began at sunrise, is over for most. Now the city eats. The day's main meal is eaten in the late afternoon. Like everything else, it's governed by class. The wealthy can eat in their homes. Couches are arranged around a low table. Family members recline with their invited guests. It's an elaborate affair, a key social activity. The people lower down the scale don't have kitchens or a space to eat. From the sheer number of taverns and diners in the town, it looks as if, for many, the norm is to eat out. So here we find ourselves in one of the other restaurants that we've been excavating in this town block. Uh, as customers would have come up through this long passageway, they would reach the end of the property where they would find, out on the left-hand side here, two dining rooms. In the second one here, if we enter in, what you could expect to have found in 79 AD was uh, a few couches around the side and the back walls. And also very simple, very basic wall decoration. Nothing like the fancy kinds of decoration we find in the much better appointed restaurants. What we've also found in this area are many of these gaming pieces with this kind of a heads and a tails feature to it. These are fantastic reminders that not only eating and drinking was important in this establishment, but also gambling as well. Archaeologists have pieced together what was on the menu. They've taken the garbage and the waste that was trapped 2,000 years ago in the drains of this building and sifted through it. They add water and force air bubbles through. The fragments which float to the surface are then removed for analysis. Here we've got some little seeds that we've picked out through the flotation. Got an apple seed in here. So we know that they're eating a wide variety of apples, you know, fruit, different kinds of fruit like pears and figs, a lot of grape seeds, there's a lot of grape in the diet, so those are very common. Fish, a lot of fish bones, fish scale. In fact, even the lower class citizens have access to a wide range of foods. They benefit directly from the power of the Roman Empire vast trade networks that bring in goods from thousands of miles away. When archaeologists looked at the drain from one restaurant, they found a, a wide variety of food. So the people of Pompeii eat well. But this is also a special day. Oddly enough, the very night before the eruption, out here would have been the festival of the Vulcanalia, 
This is a, a festival to appease the god Vulcan. Vulcan is the god of fire. Fire is the force that brings warmth and light into every Roman's life. He's the blacksmith god. The patron of metalworkers like Garasinus. Roman poets imagine volcanoes as the chimneys above his workshop, and so he gives them their name. Vulcan is also a god of destruction. Vulcan was the, the god of fire and earthquake and volcanoes, and so what you could imagine out here would have been a series of bonfires into which were thrown live sacrifices of fish. This was all designed to appease the volcano of course, the great irony is the very next day, uh, Vesuvius completely obliterated the entire city here. Many of these people have only hours left as millions of tons of molten rock start to push the mountain apart. Pompeii begins its last night. Pompeii is forever linked with two things, disaster and decadence. This city is often portrayed as a place of luxurious living and sexual freedom. He is a fine specimen. Well, you can't deny it. There is some truth to this. Archaeologists have uncovered evidence of decadent living combined with a promiscuous attitude towards sex. On this narrow side street is a building that was once a dedicated brothel. It's still one of the site's biggest tourist attractions. Scratched into the walls of one of the cubicles is an extraordinary informal record. It's a selection of customer reviews. What we find in these graffiti are the names of people, people who came here for a quick toss with the prostitutes. In fact, we find that the amount that they paid was very little, and the graffiti tell us that as well. I paid two asses. That's pretty cheap, because you could get a cup of common wine for two to four asses. The most expensive one, in fact, was probably 16 asses, or a denarius, and that would be a very special slave. And I say slave because what we know also from these graffiti is that the names of the prostitutes are mostly slave names. The graffiti also bears evidence that male prostitutes were available. For a Roman man, there was no shame attached to having sex with either a male or a female, as long as he was the one taking the active role. It's clear that people of ancient Rome seem to have their own set of rules, and compared to other ancient civilizations at that time, their lives were quite luxurious. But on August 24th, AD 79, this life ends. The morning brings terror. At 9 in the morning, 
On the 24th of August, 79 AD, the people of Pompeii could see a weak eruption column coming out of a crater like this one that was depositing a thin layer of ash on the slopes around the volcano. Then suddenly at one o'clock, the full eruption. The explosion throws almost one cubic mile of rock and ash into the air. And now the people of Pompeii know this is not just an ordinary tremor. In one rich man's house, a team of painters is trying to finish a job. For them, it's the sound and the vibration which finally signal the danger. They feel the earth splitting and spitting fire 27 miles into the sky. This is the moment when all normal life in Pompeii stops. When those who can run. So when the eruption comes, the painters are already at work and they decide to leave in a terrific hurry. Such a hurry that one of them knocks over his bucket of plaster, spills against this central painting. So this isn't some later concretion. This is the moment the plaster hit the wall as the painters attempted to get away. In this piece of plaster, that one moment of panic almost 2,000 years ago is perfectly preserved. They leave so fast that they leave their tools behind them and they get out. The wind has pushed the cloud of gas and rock southeast from the mountain, directly over the city. It cools and loses energy, and then the cloud falls. Terror takes over the streets. When Mount Vesuvius erupts, many Pompeians cover their heads for protection. But the city is being bombarded with rocks, making their efforts futile. By late afternoon, the fallout has filled the streets to a depth of around five feet. For those still sheltered inside their homes, there comes a new danger. So as many of the buildings are now starting to fall down under the weight of all the volcanic debris, we can expect that our working-class district, with its poor architecture, was one of the first to go. People flee their wooden-roofed homes, believing that sturdier stone structures will keep them safe. At the back of the restaurant owner's block is a theater with a covered walkway. It's at this time that many of the inhabitants are now fleeing to these public spaces, which held the promise of much greater and stronger architecture uh, in the weight of all the debris. 24 hours ago, these people had a home, a business, a job, a comfortable life. Now they watch as what hasn't burned is buried, and they are helpless. In fact, it was in here that the first excavators found many of the bodies of Pompeii's victims. Many, in fact, probably came from our working-class district. 
Most of these victims died in the next phase of the eruption. A series of pyroclastic currents and clouds superheated to over 1300 degrees Fahrenheit, traveling at up to 200 miles an hour. The pyroclastic flows are a mixture of gas and ashes that move very fast on the slopes of the volcano. They have a very large kinetic energy with the power to destroy anything that is in their way. The victims are hit by a wall of heat and enveloped in dense, unbreathable gas. This suffocated them at first, and then other pyroclastic flows buried the bodies. These left a deposit in this area of more than a meter of volcanic ash. And this is how the two men, the shackled slave and his companion, meet their end. As the deadly volcano wreaks havoc from above, the Bay of Naples below prepares its own devastating surprise. One that would have perplexed already panicked residents of the ancient city. Surviving Pompeians tell tales of the sea retreating as if the earthquakes were literally pushing the sea away. In ancient times, they didn't know this was a sign that a tsunami was on its way. monstrous wave that could not be escaped. One thing I learned from working on the film Pompeii is that once the volcano erupted, the rich and the working class and slave alike were all fighting for their lives. So far, the bodies of over 1,000 individuals killed in this way have been recovered. There may be hundreds more still buried beneath a layer of ash that blankets this entire region. Because of the amount of excavation done here, it's easy to forget that these buildings were completely buried. Archaeologists have left this area of the city untouched to illustrate the volume of material that the volcano dumped on Pompeii. What we can observe is that this is the basic Roman ground level at 79 AD. The level was completely changed in a few hours. In fact, after the 79 AD eruption, there was an accumulation, a huge volume of volcanic materials in this area. The eruption lasts for three days. Within the city's walls, eight million tons fall. But what this blizzard of ash, fire and stone doesn't destroy, it preserves. And the city that has vanished suddenly from the map slowly slips from memory too. Pompeii lay safe 
forgotten for 1,500 years until it was found again purely by accident. The Roman Empire, which had mourned its destruction, is gone forever. But Pompeii could take on a new life. The volcano has erupted again many times, its ash falling as far away as Istanbul. But still, every year archaeologists, historians, and tourists come back. Every year, they find something new. Though excavations yield the finest collections ever found of Roman treasures and Roman art, they also reveal something more precious. The life of a society long dead. The lives of individuals who would otherwise be forgotten. We hope you have enjoyed this lesson from God's Word. If you would like to continue your study of New Testament Christianity, please send your name and address to World Bible School, West Huntsville Church of Christ, 1519 Old Monrovia Road, Northwest, Huntsville, Alabama, 35806. Or if you prefer, send your name and address by email to wbs at westhuntsville.org.